All right. Today is Palm Sunday, and it is the last day of our sermon series we've been going through for the last couple of months called The Blessing, in which we've been looking at Abraham's career as the first person that God called to love his neighbors. And when I originally planned this series out, it was going to end last week because I ran out of stories about him loving his neighbors, or so I thought. Uh, and I was planning, and I started to write a sermon today, because you have, you have two options on Palm Sunday. Um, you, there's two stories you can preach on, typically. Either focus on the triumphal entry or the crucifixion. And the argument for talking about the crucifixion is that if you go straight from Palm Sunday to Easter, you're going from celebration to celebration, and you miss the darkness in between. It's very important. So I was originally planning on talking about the crucifixion. And the question that I really wanted to delve into that, that I always come back to when I think about the crucifixion of Jesus is, why did it have to be death? Why did Jesus have to die? Because no one's ever been able to convince me that God did not have the freedom to decide. I don't know of any force outside of God that would make him do things a certain way. And it's always, I've always wondered, why did God in his freedom choose to involve death in this central moment of saving humanity? Why did Jesus have to die? And the interesting thing as I worked on that sermon is that it kept pulling me back to the stories that we've been telling about Abraham. And it kept pulling me back to one particular story as well that we haven't talked about that happens at the end of the story of Abraham. And it also helps connect the death of Jesus with the command to love our neighbors. Because that's the other thing. We've been talking about the command to love our neighbors. And being a good neighbor is something all kinds of people talk about, not just Christians. So, and if Jesus came to get us to love God and to love our neighbors, why did he have to die to do that? Why couldn't he just give us some good pointers, some good commands and instructions, and explain to us how to properly love our neighbors? Why do we have to... Why did there have to be this death that seems to interrupt what he's doing? It was kind of like, even if I had wanted to keep doing the sermon series, I have to stop here and talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus because it's Easter. It interrupts our schedules. And it seems to have interrupted Jesus' pretty fruitful career of telling people to be nice to each other. Why was that so important to what he was doing? And it ultimately, all of this draws me back to deciding to focus on the last story about, the last real story about Abraham, which doesn't seem to have anything to do with loving your neighbors until you read it in context of all the other things we've been talking about throughout this series. So we are going to read Genesis 22, one of the most challenging stories in the Bible. It's called the Binding of Isaac is the traditional name. I'm going to read the story, and then we're going, to, we're going to break it down. We're going to talk about what we learned from this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, 
Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. You've been with us through this series. You know I've mentioned that every time Abraham does something right, God responds by repeating the blessing, reaffirming the blessing. This is the last time that he does that, and it's also the first time that he makes the link explicit. He says, because you have done this, I will bless you. And he lists all the blessings that we've been hearing about since Genesis 12. And there seems to be some sense in which this is the moment when Abraham lives up to his side of the arrangement. The book of James certainly takes it this way, that this is the moment when, when Abraham fulfills his job. This is when he becomes the kind of person who can be blessed. And he does it by trying to sacrifice his son on an altar, which is challenging for us. It's also challenging that God told him to do this, right? We know that God, uh, you can tell from the story that God didn't intend for Isaac to die, but that doesn't necessarily make it easier that God told Abraham to kill his own son. And it brings up the same story as the crucifixion. Why did God introduce death into the story? Why did God make death the stakes? And that's what I want to talk about today. And I'm going to tell you my, my answer right off the bat, and it's going to take me a little bit to explain it. But let me give you my, my understanding of why God told him that, to sacrifice his son. God's command to sacrifice his son forced Abraham to face his ultimate enemy, the fear of death. It's funny, pastors talk a lot about the things we're not supposed to talk about, like that there's pressure not to preach on. And we'll talk about, you know, we're not supposed to talk about this sin or that sin, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be brave and, and talk about politics or that thing. Or that. But the actually strongest uh, um, Impulse, the thing that you really don't talk about, even pastors don't want to talk about, is death. Um, But at the core of this is Abraham's fear of death. 
And I want us to understand that because, because this plays a central role in what God is doing. And it plays a central role in our relationship with our neighbors. The fear of death does. The reason why I argue that this has to do with the fear of death is, first of all, if you look back at the story of Abraham, what you will find is that the fear of death was behind all of Abraham's failures to love his neighbors. Every time Abraham fails to live up to his calling, it is because of his fear of death. And I would also argue that for us, most if not all of our failures to love our neighbors are because of some form of our fear of death. Now let me explain to you what I mean, because there's different levels to the fear of death. There's the basic level, which in psychology is called basic anxiety. Basic anxiety is like when you're in the pool and you suddenly are not sure you're going to be able to stay at the surface and you start to freak out. Like Basic anxiety is I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of having, not having enough food, not having enough water, not having, you know, I'm, I'm afraid for my safety. Basic anxiety. And, you know, when you're in a pool and you're swimming around, you, know, you follow basic pool etiquette, you're polite to your neighbors, right? How polite are you to your neighbors when you think you're drowning? That, that fear of dying suddenly lowers your priority of being a good neighbor to the other people in the pool quite a bit, very quickly. This is what happens to Abraham. When we look at the story, and the, the two prominent failures that we looked at in the story, they were both because of Abraham's fear that he was about to die. Because that fear of death, it made him selfish and suspicious of his neighbors. Remember, we talked about this last week, that his entire career in Canaan, Abraham had this policy of lying about his wife, saying that she was just his sister, because he was afraid that people would murder him to steal his wife. Now, nobody ever tried that. We are never given a reason why he might think that. Everybody is shocked. When, it ha- when, when somebody ends up trying to marry his wife, both times, they're like shocked that Abraham thought that they would have tried to steal her in the first place. So it's all in Abraham's head. But when he's afraid of death, that fear, that self-focus, that desperation to stay alive makes him selfish and suspicious of people around him. And this is part of human nature. We don't want to die. And that, that, you know, I don't want to die, and that's all about me. And so if I'm reacting to my fear of death, that puts me above everybody else. And we will do crazy things to keep ourselves alive. Job chapter 2 says, a man will give all he has for his own life. Anybody know who said that? That's Satan. That's Satan's observation of human nature in Job chapter 2. That if you take away, he's arguing that the only reason why Job is still worshiping God after losing his family and his money is because God's keeping him alive. Because the human beings will do anything just to keep themselves alive. And to a pretty high extent, that is true. So the most obvious failures in Abraham's career of loving his neighbors, where he actually, because when his wife gets stolen, it wasn't just a stolen wife, which is bad enough, but then God has to curse the people who have stolen the wife in order to make sure that, that Sarah gets, is given back, right? So whole, whole nations get cursed because of what Abraham is doing. Like, that is, that is epically bad neighboring, right? Like, that is re- 
I doubt that any of you will fail at neighboring in a way that brings a curse on an entire community. But that's not the only level of our fear of death. What I'm about to talk about you can find in Scripture, you can also find in psychology, because there's basic anxiety, which is I don't want to die. But human beings are unique in uh, the creatures that God has made in that we realize no matter what I do, I am eventually going to die. It's just a matter of when. Like, I'm going to do everything I can to put that off as long as possible, but I'm not immortal. I am going to eventually lose, lose the battle with death. Right? It's like, any, any, if you ever see a book and it says it's a great survival story, that means they stop the story before the end. Right? Like, no matter what you survive, you're not ultimately going to survive. <laughs> and we know that, and we don't like that. We don't like the fact that we're going to die. We don't like what that says about us because we all feel like we're the main character in the story. The story can't go on without us, right? We, we feel like we're that character in the movie that you know isn't going to die because they named the movie after that person. But then it turns out we are going to die. And so we fight back against that with this, um, it's called neurotic anxiety. That, so basic anxiety says, I don't want to die. And neurotic anxiety says, I don't want to die uselessly. I don't want to die a loser. If I'm going to die, I want to live a life that matters. I want to achieve something, accomplish something, be something. And so, so much of our, uh, of our motivation in this life comes from the fact that we know that we're mortal and we want to do something with the time that we have. And they've done psychological studies that show that when you get someone to think about their own death, they all of a sudden start caring more about certain things. They care more about starting a family. They care more about achievement in their career. They care more about um, playing uh, an active role in their community. Uh, Here's a weird one. So they took these judges, these American judges, and half of them, they gave a survey where they had to think about their own death. The other half they didn't do anything special with. But these are sitting American judges who are literally their job is to be unbiased and neutral and rational, right? That's their one job, okay? They gave them, and then they took these people, half of whom had had to think about their own death, and they asked them to set the bail for a particular case. And the average bail in this particular case was $50 out in the, outside the city, in the real world. The half that hadn't had to think about their death, they set the bail at $50, the half that, had to, that did think about their death averaged $450. Because they suddenly cared a lot more about being defenders of society. They are judges. They play a particular role. There's a particular way to be a hero as a judge. That's what we look for. We look for these pathways of being heroes in our community. So, and, and our culture... Psychologists, some psychologists will argue that everything we make in our culture is, is giving us ways to be a hero. There is a way for you to be a hero as a parent, you know, in building a family. There's a way for you to be a hero in your job, in your career. There's a way to be a hero in, like, there's all these different things that you can do that basically people have agreed, yeah, that makes you important. And so we chase after those things. And this is what happened with Abraham, that fear of death made him seek meaning in his earthly success. See, for Abraham, his particular hero pathway 
for someone in his stage of life, his situation, was to have a family to whom he could pass on his, his estate, the family business, right? You had to carry on your name. And so there's this moment in Genesis 15 when the Lord came to Abraham and said, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. And, that, and Abraham says, wow, that's amazing. The creator of the universe is on my side. There's nothing else I need. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, God. Right? No. Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my state is some guy, Eleazar of Damascus? You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. What's the point if you can't give my life meaning? He said to the creator of the universe, there's nothing you can give me that matters if you don't give me a son. Because he found his meaning in passing on his, that's, that's what winning in life looked like. And when you realize that Abraham's motive, see, God, God and Abraham both want Abraham to have a son. Both of their plans are for him to have a son, but for different reasons. And we sometimes assume that Abraham is passionate about having a son for God's reasons. That he's passionate simply because God said, I'm going to bless the whole world through a son, through giving you a son. That's not the case. We'll see that in a second. He's excited to have a son for his own reasons. And we can tell because he pursues that goal in his own way. And all the other things that Abraham does to hurt his neighbors are in pursuit of this goal. Because fear of death, remember that desperation that makes me selfish? The same thing happens with this other level of anxiety, this neurotic anxiety. So he was willing to succeed at the expense of his neighbors. See, if Abraham had only cared about having a son for the sake of God's plan, he wouldn't have been anxious about God fulfilling it. It's God's plan. If God wants to do it, he'll do it. If he changes his mind, he'll do something else. It's not, it's not that big. God will just do however he does it, right? But Abraham was personally invested in having a son. His wife was personally invested in his son because that's her only hero path in that culture, right? And so when it looks to them like they're not going to get to be heroes, they start to get nervous. And then they start to cross lines that they shouldn't. So they, this is when they get together and they decide that Abraham is going to take uh, Hagar, Sarah's slave, and have a child through her. And then that unleashes all kinds of, of just toxicity in their family that's just horrible. And it ends up with, so pretty soon Hagar starts gloating over Sarah. So Sarah gets Hagar kicked out or uh, treats Hagar so badly that she runs away pregnant into the desert to die. And God has to bring her back. And then they have the child. And then Sarah finally has Isaac, but then she sees Hagar and her son as a threat. And so Sarah starts pushing for Hagar and Ishmael to get sent out. And ultimately, God tells Abraham, go ahead, do it. I'll take care of him. And all this toxicity, all these people being hurt because Abraham and Sarah need to succeed in this life to try and fight off their fear of death. This story... This backstory is essential to understanding what's going on when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. Because you have to understand that in the 10 chapters it took to get there, Abraham and Sarah left behind a streak of human wreckage in their quest to have that child. They have hurt person after person, cursed community after community, all trying to get this child, and then God has given it to them. And the question is, 
Is Abraham even being faithful? Or is, he just, is this just another step of him doing whatever it takes to have a son? Every step of the way, Abraham has failed in the test against his fear of death. This also helps us understand, this is why I'm arguing that he's facing his fear of death in this instance, even though he's not the one that's supposed to die. Because Abraham, in order to win, all Abraham has to do is live long enough to have a son. Right? Because he knows he's going to die, but he wants to die with a son to inherit his, his fortune. Right? And so if God had said, I'm gonna, Abraham, here's the test, I want you to go to the mountain and jump off of it, probably would have been hard, but not nearly as hard as sacrificing his son. And not just because he loves his son, but also because everything he has done, good or bad, up to this point in the story has been to have a son. If he dies with Isaac alive, he dies a winner. He dies with meaning. The successful life. If Isaac dies before him, he dies a loser. He dies a failure. And all of that anxiety comes back. All that fear comes back. And so to tell Abraham to sacrifice his son is to force him to face all of that temptation, all of that fear and anxiety, the ultimate test of whether he's following God and trusting in God or just doing whatever it takes to get what he wants. It's the same test that Job faces, actually. And in this case, as we heard in the story, Abraham succeeds. Abraham is willing to obey the commands of God. And the question is, why? How is he able to succeed? Well, it's actually the book of Hebrews that gives us a picture into his mentality. In Hebrews it says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God would, could even raise the dead, and so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Notice what it says in this passage. It says that he embraced the promises. God told him, I'm going to make you a nation through your son Isaac. That was the promise. And Abraham trusted in that promise. So much so that he reasoned, he says, I don't know how. I don't know how God's going to do it. He told me to kill my son. He told me he's going to make a nation through my son. Both are somehow going to be true. Somehow there's going to be some kind of resurrection. I don't know what it looks like, but I trust God that he will fulfill his promises. That's ultimately the test. Are you going to trust God's promises or are you going to take control yourself? And in this one moment, after a career of failure in this test over and over again, in one moment, he believed enough to trust God to overcome death on his behalf. So Abraham overcame his fear by trusting that God would overcome death for the sake of his promise. Now we come to the question of what does this have to do with us? How does this help us? As Because I doubt any of us, none of you have been, as far as I know, have been promised 
that your children will become nations. And so you're not, so the same test wouldn't work for you, right? So how does this apply to us in a completely different context, in a completely different world? One of the important things that I think this story does for us is it reminds us of the connection between our personal spiritual growth and our personal battle with our fear of death and our anxieties and our outer life of loving our neighbors. We would love to be able to do the right thing in our outer life regardless of what's going on in our inner life. Uh, I'll work on my spiritual, I'll work on my relationship with Christ later, but I'll, I'll keep all the, I'll, I'll be a good Christian, a good citizen in all the outer stuff regardless of what's going on on the inside. But what we see in Abraham's story is that we cannot, be full, we cannot be truly free to love our neighbors until we are free of death. Because as long as we are subject to death and our fear of death, that panic of me first is always going to be in play. Notice how Paul describes love. Love is patient, Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. None of those things are consistent with a fear of death mindset, right? If you're a person who's consumed with the fear of death, the fear of, of not mattering, the fear, uh, you're not going to be able to do any of those things. You're not going to be able to be patient because you have limited time. That's the whole problem is I only have so much time to get this stuff done. You don't have time to be kind, you're absolutely going to envy because it's a competition. Not everybody can be heroes. If we're all heroes, nobody's a hero. So I've got to beat at least somebody. It's like getting chased by a bear, right? You don't have to be the fastest, but just don't be the slowest. And you're somebody's hero. All of these things. He says, it does, love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. These are all things that you can't do if you're consumed by your fear of death. You're consumed by yourself. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. We can't love like this when we're entrapped in death. And one of the things we, in, in our particular part of the church, um, we, we tend to view things a certain way where we say, the main problem is sin and death comes from sin. And sin is a main problem, but that relationship between sin and death can actually go both ways. Which is that our mortality is one of the main things that causes us to sin. It's interesting that Paul in Romans, he has this great passage, it's kind of confusing, convoluted, which is why it works. In Romans 7, he talks about what it's like to be a person who wants to obey God, but can't ever seem to actually do it right. It says, the things that I want to do, the things that I know I should do, these are the things I don't do. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. When it comes into the moment, though, I keep doing the wrong thing that I told myself I wasn't going to do this time. I find it a law in me that when it comes down to it, I fail. Right? And at the end, he says, it's, it takes this kind of weird turn right at the end. The culmination of this whole thing about what it's like to be entrapped by death is this. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? The problem that seems to, to rise up at crunch time is that, that, that fear, when it comes into the moment where you may actually have to risk something, that fear comes up, and that's what pushes us to do the things that we, we set out we weren't going to do, right? 
It's like you say, I'm going to ride on a roller coaster, and this time I'm not going to scream. Right? This time I'm going to keep it together. You can decide that all you want in line. It's not going to make much of a difference when you're actually on the roller coaster, right? In the moment, your fear response will often overwhelm all those decisions you make. Well, it's the same thing that happens to us, that we are entrapped by this mortal nature that won't allow us to be the kinds of people that God called us to be. So, who will rescue us from this body that is subject to death? This is why I believe that Jesus had to die when he came. We talked last week about the importance of atonement, that something has to be done to publicly deal with the disruption that sin causes in our lives, right? But why does it have to involve a death? Why couldn't they have just whipped Jesus and then called it good? God could have set any price on an atonement that he wanted. Why did it have to involve death? Well, I won't presume to know all of God's reasoning, and he's obviously far beyond me, but I can tell you that it seems to me the one reason why it would absolutely have to involve death is because death is an enemy that has to be conquered. Because if Jesus had been whipped within an inch of a life and then said, hey, everybody's forgiven, it would have been no better than the law of Moses. Because the law of Moses gave you a way to be forgiven, but you were still mortal. We don't just need to be forgiven, we need to be changed so we can be drawn out of these patterns. And that's why in Hebrews it says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus had to die to come back to show us that death is conquered, to break the power that it has over us, the stranglehold that it has over our, our self-esteem, our, our behavior, everything that we do and everything that we think about ourselves. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, Our Savior Jesus Christ has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This had to happen. Death had to be dealt with. Because we have to be freed from that innate nature to put ourselves first, to get desperate. That, that thing that makes us you know, do crazy things when we think we're drowning in the pool. We don't realize you can just stand up because it's only three feet deep. But we're, you're freaking out, right? We ha- that has to be changed in us. So Jesus had to die so he could conquer death and free us from its power. And we see in Romans... What happens when we are no longer entrapped by this this, uh, mortal nature? Paul uses this word sarx in Greek that is often translated flesh, but sometimes sinful nature, all these different things, uh, and so it can be hard to pick up on the themes. But whenever he says, uses the word sarx, he's talking about our mortal nature. It's always referring to um, our mortal nature. And so I'm going to read you this passage from chapter 8. As he responds, the, the response to that whole story about what it's like to be a human being entrapped in sin, he says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by mortality, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful mortality to be a sin offering. See, the the law couldn't help us because we're still mortal. We still had the exact same overpowering reasons to break the law no matter how many times we got forgiven. 
He says, those who live according to mortality have their mind set on what mortality desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by mortality is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. When we are set free from our fear of death, we suddenly have the ability to live according to a completely different value system. We suddenly have the ability to live according to the Spirit of God because our, our, self, our sense of self-preservation pulls in the opposite direction of the Spirit. Our sense of self-exaltation, wanting myself to be a big deal, that pulls in the opposite direction of the Spirit. And so what happens is we are freed from our fear of death. When we realize that Jesus has conquered death, we can live as if we're never going to die. How would you spend your money differently if you didn't have to worry about having enough to feed yourself? If you didn't have to worry about dying, how would you live your life differently? How would you react to your neighbors differently? If you didn't have to worry about any... I mean, maybe, maybe you have neighbors that make you fear for your safety, possibly, Maybe you have neighbors who just take up more of your, your limited time than you're willing to spare. Maybe you have neighbors that entertaining them or, or having them into your home would require more resources, more resources than you want to give. How different would we live if we didn't have to fear those things? If you knew you could live forever. Can you see that? How, how thinking that I, I don't, you would have no fear of missing out right? If you had no fear of missing out, how differently could you live? It changes everything. And that is exactly what the death of Christ and then his resurrection give us, is the ability to live differently because we don't have to fear death. That doesn't mean that we don't care about death. I mean, Jesus wept when his friend died. I'm not saying we don't care about death, but when it comes to choosing between our fear of death and obedience to God, we can actually choose to obey God. That is a resource that we have that nobody else who's trying to be a good neighbor has. This is what makes us different. It's not that we're better at loving our neighbors than anybody else. And it's not even that we figured out better ways to love our neighbors than anybody else. But Jesus Christ actually gives us the freedom to love recklessly. When we trust Jesus to conquer death, we can love without fear. And that changes everything. We can do the things that our, our mortal nature is afraid of doing. We might be willing to give up more of our limited time than we otherwise would have. More of our limited resources. It changes everything. And so as we, as we come to the end, next week, we're going to delve a little deeper into this. And we're going to talk more about why the resurrection matters and why we're afraid of death, and why the resurrection matters. But today, I simply want to send you home with the knowledge that following Jesus can free you from the fear of death. I want you to start thinking through, how, how do you value things in your life differently if you know that your time is not going to be limited by this life? 
If you have eternal life in Jesus, then however long you live this side of the grave, it will be 0% of your existence, right? Mathematically, if you live forever, you could live to be 200 and it would still be 0% of your eternal life. How does that change the math for you? I'm going to invite the praise team to come up. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you offer us life eternal through your Son. And you don't just offer it to us, but you bought it for us at such a high price to yourself. Father, we fear um, that our lives are meaningless and worthless, but the truth is that it is worth what someone will pay for it, and you paid the life of your Son for us. We thank you for the chance that we have to live forever. And Father, I thank you even more for the way that that knowledge changes the way we live here and now. We pray that you would help us to, um, to live out that reality, to live eternal life now in the way we can love without fear, serve without fear, share without fear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At Turner Christian Church, we believe that a fully functioning disciple of Jesus is connected with God and his church, growing in faith and love, and serving their community and world. And so we also believe that every time we gather as a community that we have opportunities to take next steps. So right now, I'd like you to consider what the next step is that God is calling you to take. And if you are in a place where you don't know Jesus, where you don't have that assurance that you're going to live forever, then I would encourage you that today is the best day to come to know Jesus. Today is the best day to find that way to live without fear because it's only found in Jesus. If you're here, I'd encourage you to come up and talk to me or Pastor Rachel after the service or even during this last song. Or if you'd like to talk to us more, there's a connect card in the seat back in front of you. Fill that out, drop it in the back, and you can um, ask about, for more.